Well, we're back in Colossians for our fourth look at this unmistakably Christocentric uh, epistle by the Apostle Paul. And we're looking at what Paul said to the church in Colossae, um, inspecting specifically what kind of church God wanted them to be. And by extension, what kind of church God wants us to be. Uh, the simple and plain answer to it, as we're pointing out in every part of this letter, is that God wants his church to be a Christ-centered church. That's the, the plain and simple answer, right? Now, think of the most essential and directive questions that could be asked of anyone who knows that God is real. If someone believes in God, uh, the, the uh, most pivotal question that can be asked is, how do we approach God? Uh, how do we satisfy God? How do we please God? How do we, um, how do we serve God? How do we glorify God? How do we worship God? That's ultimately, the, that, that's the wrap-up word, isn't it? How do we worship God? If we had the answer to that line of questioning, all of life would very quickly get figured out. That's what we're asking when we, uh, when we uh, wonder to ourselves, what's God's will for my life? You ever had that question? Right, what's God's will for my life? That's, that's still asking, what do I do to make him happy? What do I do that will fulfill my purpose? Right? What's God's will for my life? That's the same thing as asking, how do we approach God, satisfy God, please God, glorify God? How do we worship God? God has told us in so many different ways throughout the Bible on how to do that. The, the most famous being, love God, love your neighbor. Right? Two, two greatest commandments, according to, uh, to Jesus. Um, but how can we do that? How do you love God, love your neighbor? I mean, we could, we could give it an honest shot. We can, we can give it our best attempt, but uh, we're bound to fail at some point. Right? We're, we're never going to be able to carry that out uh, with, with perfect acuity and perfect uh, performance. Uh, we're going to mess up. We, we can't possibly fulfill those directives anywhere close to God's standard because perfection is his standard. Without mistake, without fail, without blemish, without defect is his standard. So any attempt that we make will at some point fall short since sinful people cannot create a holy solution. And that's the whole reason for why Jesus came to save us in the first place, isn't it? Because we cannot save ourselves. We cannot contrive or orchestrate or, or put together our own holy solution. That's just not going to happen. And since we can't come up with the right way to approach or satisfy or please or glorify or worship God, God came up with one for us. He sent his son, Jesus, to die for us. And Jesus is the one and only, then, he is the one and only God-given way to worship. He's the only means that, uh, that's divinely acceptable by which we approach and satisfy and please and glorify and worship God. He's the sole and supreme center and source of everything in all matters of faith and practice. And that's kind of what's, what's uh, happening here in this letter to the Colossians. That's what the Apostle Paul is getting to. This has major implications on everything and anything that we do as a church. On everything that the Colossians were instructed to do, everything that we by extension are instructed to do. Being Christ-centered redirects who we pray for and what we pray about and why we pray and how we pray. Being Christ-centered constitutes the whole purpose and aim for everything we teach, whether it be in a sermon or a Bible study or just an instructive conversation about the Word. Being Christ-centered transforms the way we lead and serve and suffer and submit among one another. And as we'll inspect today, being Christ-centered defines how we approach, satisfy, please, and worship God how we glorify him, how we do all of that. We'll look at chapter 2, verses 6 through 23. I'll start with the, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll move in three parts, okay? Verses uh, 6 through 8 will kind of give you the principle, the, the, the big idea. 
Uh, and then uh, verses 9 through 15 will give you the theology. And then verses 16 to 23 will give you the, the practice. Right? So you'll get the, the main principle, and then you'll get the theology, the explanation of why, uh, why that's the principle, and then how it works out, how it's supposed to be applied in the context of the first century readers in Colossae. So let's, uh, let's start with the principle in uh, chapter 2, verse 6. Uh, this is what it says. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Now, if you notice right there, that's the positive instruction, right? As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, uh, walk in him, rooted and built up and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. That's what you're supposed to do. Okay, And then he gives you the, the negative side of it, right? The, the, there's the heads and now there's the tails. He says in verse 8, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. See, so the, the, that first part, verses 6 and 7, tell you what, you what you're supposed to do, the positive instruction, and then verse 8 gives you the negative instruction, the thing that you're supposed to avoid, right? Uh, I would keep verse 8 with with 6 and 7 then. I, uh, that's, that's where the, the big idea is for this passage. Uh, it's the controlling idea. Now, here's something that people surprisingly misunderstand, even though they've been in church for, for many, many years. It's that uh, you haven't received Jesus as Lord if you don't submit to his lordship. I mean, it seems like a no-duh kind of idea, but that's, that's the truth of it. Uh, if you have not submitted to the lordship of Jesus and said, Jesus, you take control of my life, right? You're, you're the one that, that uh, tells me where to go and what to do. If you haven't submitted to his lordship, you haven't received him as lord. You can say that you have. You can say it all you want. But if, if he is not defining then the decisions and the values of your life, you haven't submitted to his lordship. The absolute lordship of Jesus entails the corollary absolute slaveship of the Christian, if you think Jesus is your Lord, walk in him. That's the way that Paul says it, right? You received Christ Jesus, so walk in him, meaning live the way he instructs you. It's, you know, that, that uh, idea of walk your talk, right? If that's what you say, then this is how you do, right? Walk in him. Having been uh, rooted in Jesus is a past event. It's, a, it's in, the, in the perfect tense Right, having been rooted in Him, and then everything else becomes a, a, a present, uh, a present idea that you're continually being built up and established in the faith uh, that you've been taught, that you heard, that the apostles gave you, and you're constantly abounding in thanksgiving. Now, think about these ideas, okay? Uh, having been rooted in Jesus, right? Do you notice that in verse seven? Rooted and built up. Having been rooted in Jesus, what does that mean to be rooted? See, biblically, the, the, uh, the image communicates to the first century audience because that was an agricultural society. That was a farming society. So when he says being rooted in Jesus, they, they would like latch on to, to that kind of language. The imagery of having good roots means you can endure when things get hard. That's the idea. When Jesus gives a, a parable in Matthew 13, you know, he's, he, he talks about seeds that fall on different kinds of soil, and if it doesn't have good roots, then... Uh, then it's snatched away or it dries up. And, you know, he, he talks about roots. But then the ones that, that have good roots and find water, those are the ones that bear fruit, right? This idea of, of, uh, of having good roots being planted by water, this, is, uh, this ensures the health of the, of the plant, of the tree, of the vine, um, even when, uh, when weather is, is 
unforgiving and relentless, right? Take a look at uh, the imagery in Jeremiah 17, verse 8. Uh, here's this imagery of being rooted well, right? Uh, he's like a tree planted by water that sends its roots out by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. That's kind of the idea, right? Now, Israel was a desert, is a desert. That's the climate. And so you kind of have this barren wasteland, this desolate, blasted area of nothing, and then when you have this, this small little stream that cuts through it all, right around it, there's all this greenery. There are all these plants that, that, that are lush and fruitful all around this little stream, and then everything else is just dry, cracked dirt. That's the, the imagery that, uh, that this guy is, is talking about here in Jeremiah 17. He's saying, like, when you're, when you're faithful to God, you've got good roots. You're like a, you're like a plant that's, that's next, to, uh, next to water, and you've got good roots. And even though the drought comes, you still bear fruit. Even though the heat is just bearing down and the sun is, uh, is burning everything up, still your leaves remain green. It's this idea that you will endure even when there's hardship. This idea that you'll suffer and you'll suffer well if you need to. That's the thing about good roots. Uh, roots don't search for other sources of water once they've found a good source. Right? When, when, uh, when roots have, have found a good source, they, they, they buckle down, and that's where they draw all their life. That's, that's what they depend on. Saving faith in Jesus roots you in Jesus. You walk in him. You live in him. You don't look for other sources of life. It's just right on him. You find that there's, there's this water in him that, that bubbles up and he doesn't, he doesn't run out. If you're rooted in Jesus, drawing life from him, then you'll continually be built up and established to trust what the apostles taught. Right? That's the, the, these are the present tense ideas. It's a, uh, it, it's a change in the metaphor, right? In, uh, in, uh, verse, uh, sorry, in verse seven, it says, having been rooted, that's the plant metaphor. And then he changes to a building metaphor that you're established and being built up, right? It's a construction kind of idea. Now, I, personally, I, I love when, uh, when the Bible reminds us that we as believers are still under construction. That's super important, you know, because we, we might try to say, like, oh, if you're a Christian, you're going to act like this. And we, we might try to beat each other, uh, other over the head with it, saying, like, if you don't... If you don't uh, act perfect, then uh, you must not be a Christian. We, we sit there threatening each other like that. But that's not, not at all the way that the Apostle Paul speaks. Um, he knows that we're under construction. We're not yet finished products. We are, we are uh, being built up, and we're being established, and it's a, a continual work. That's the, that's the evidence that you have found good roots. It's the evidence that you're saved is that your life starts to, to build up in faith, and you start to grow in your knowledge. Sanctification is the, is the outcome the result of your, of your salvation. So uh, you, get, uh, you get rooted, you get established, you get built up. That naturally happens over time. Uh, and and you, you need to understand that these are things that are, are in the passive voice, meaning these things happened to you. Do you notice you're not like the active driver in, in this, right? Like uh, if, if you have saving faith in Jesus, you have been rooted and you are being built and you are being established. These things are happening to you. That is just a result. You're not actually doing anything in that. You're not in the driver's seat on those. You know, like that, these are things that God is actively doing in you. 
That's something to, uh, to hold on to because uh, God does the work. This is why we worship him. God does the work on that, right? If you come to know Jesus as Savior, you'll stay with him, nothing else. You'll grow stronger in knowing and trusting him. That's the natural outcome because that's what God does with his spirit working inside you. And the part that you play is pretty simple. You got this one thing that you're supposed to do in response. It's that you will abound in thanksgiving. You abound in That's your response. That's your worship. That's your act of worship, right? You don't do stuff to try to impress God to somehow get him to thank you. Instead, you do, you do things in response. You know that God has already done a work in you, already provided for, already saved you, supplied you. And so you respond. You give thanks. Your worship is an act of thanksgiving. Right? He's already blessed you, given you the free gift of life in Jesus, the right teaching, the right community. Right? He's done that. And not every problem goes away. Not every struggle dissolves. But you do get the strength and the support to endure and to overcome. The natural result is just giving thanks, giving glory, giving worship to the God who saves. Thanksgiving is the unfailing mark of a healthy spiritual life. Those who are sincerely grateful to God are not easy prey to anxiety or to, uh, or, or to doubt. There's no fulfillment elsewhere. When, when you find that Jesus is life, there's no fulfillment elsewhere. That you don't fall for the false promises of the world and you aren't shaken by bigoted detractors that come and assault you for your faith in him. You hear the gospel, you trust in Jesus, you weather the storms of life, being equipped by the truth and supported by God's people. And every time you come across the word and it instructs you, it strengthens you and it adds to you. Uh, verse 8 is the, that, that warning we said, though, right? The negative instruction, the thing to avoid. Verse 8 gets us to this point where it warns against certain kinds of philosophy. It doesn't mean philosophy as a field of knowledge that you can major in in college and stuff like that. It's, it's not talking about that. It's not, that's the kind of our, our usage today in, uh, you know, in, in this year, but uh, that's not the way that they would use the word back then. You know, when he, when he t- says philosophy, he's talking about uh, religious thought, world, world views, and things like that. It's not the... It's not the, the uh, field of knowledge of, of exploring the nature of reasoning. That's the way we would use it maybe in, in college. But uh, for them, when he says philosophy, he's talking about religious thought, right? Um, he, he says to, to watch out for these, these kinds of philosophies, this empty deceit, this human tradition, the elemental spirits, anything that's not according to Christ is the way that he says it. And uh, w- uh, what's really cool about this is that he says this as a warning but not as a rebuke, because uh, the Colossians, apparently, they were, uh, they were in the midst of the presence of all these influences that might try to pull them away with teachings that were not according to Christ. They, they were exposed to these influences, but they were not necessarily succumbing to them. And so he's giving a warning, like, hey, don't listen to those, those kinds of voices. Don't, don't let people do that to you. But he's not rebuking them like he does the Galatians, because they haven't yet fallen for it. Note the contrast between the influences around Colossae versus that of the gospel. The gospel is the word of truth in chapter 1, verses 5 to 6. That's what he calls it, right? But these philosophies, he says, are deceit. The gospel redeems us in chapter 1, verse 13, meaning it, uh, it liberates you. It sets you free, right? It's the, it's the word for uh, purchasing a slave and then setting him free. That's, that's redemption, 
The gospel redeems us while these philosophies that he's talking about take you captive to the domain of darkness. The gospel is spiritual wisdom in chapter 1, verse 9. Its source is heaven. While these philosophies are human tradition, their source is men. The gospel fills you in chapter 1, verse 9, and also, as it'll be mentioned in chapter 2, verse 10, uh, while these philosophies, Paul says, are empty. So he's, he's juxtaposing these, these two ideas. He's saying that the gospel is from heaven, from God, from above. And he says the philosophies, are, these are from men, from tradition, from the world. He's saying that you, you can't mix the two. They don't have any fellowship with one another. And he, he, he kind of throws in this, this little curveball here. He, he says the elemental spirits of the world, if you, if you notice that. Um, the elemental spirits of the world. It's a weird term. It sounds like it, it uh, means demons. It might, or it might not. We don't really know. It's tastoikeia uh, to cosmo. Literally, it, very, it, it just means the basics or the elements. Uh, you know our alphabet. It's made up of 26 what? Letters, right? Yeah, so their word for letters was stoikeia. It, uh, it, it was elements. You know, the, the, you have this many elements in your alphabet. We would say letters, but they would say elements. It, it, it's that, those are the basic building blocks. And so uh, he's saying these are the basic, the basics or the elementaries of the world. And so he could be saying it's the basic elemental spirits, or he could be saying the basic elemental pieces, or he could be talking about matter. It's, it's, it's really hard to, uh, to figure out, and people have opinions about it one way or another, but I, I think that uh, when he says the basics of the world, uh, his emphasis is on of the world, just like he's talking about human tradition or from men, not according to Christ. So he's saying that it's something that doesn't come from heaven. It doesn't come from above. It's just the basics of the world. It's the way that the world thinks religiously according to their philosophies. And it could be that he's saying it's the way that demons are trying to get you to think. It, but does it matter? Right? Don't listen to human tradition of the world and don't listen to demons. Which one does this mean? It doesn't matter. Don't listen to either one. Right? Both are a bad idea. The gospel is according to Christ is Paul's point. And anything that's not according to Christ, don't listen to. So whatever, whatever the elemental spirits or the elements of the world means, if it's not according to Christ, don't listen to it. These philosophies are according to, uh, to the world, from tradition, from men. It's, it's, it's not from above. Right? So th- this is, that's his uh, major controlling idea. He's like, walk in Christ, having been rooted in him and bu- being built up and being established and, and always abounding in thanksgiving and avoid anything that's not from Christ. He's saying, if you want to approach God, if you want to, if you want to serve God and glorify God, if you want to worship God, if you want to have some kind of a relationship on how you interact with him, that dynamic between you and God, it has to be connected to Christ, centered on Christ. It can't be centered on anything else. It can't be built on any of this other stuff that comes from the world. It can't be built on any of the stuff that's been written by anyone who isn't speaking the words of Christ. Let's get to the theology of it, verses 9 through 15. I'll read that little section for you first. It says, uh, For in him, in Jesus, in Christ, in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you've been filled or fulfilled in him 
who is the head of all rule and authority. In him you also were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Okay, it's a big idea, right? And uh, and the, the main point really is in, the, in verses 9 and 10, but it's this idea that Jesus is God in flesh, right? He's dwelling among us visibly, tangibly, bodily. He's in body form, physical body form. And you have been filled in him. Filled, meaning you're not lacking anything that you need spiritually. You have to understand that. When he says you are filled in Jesus, you are fulfilled. Everything is satisfied. All the requirements are checked off. Everything is done. You are fulfilled. You are filled in Jesus, right? Nothing is lacking. Everything you need spiritually now to stand before God is filled. It's accomplished. Your salvation is entirely taken care of by him. Your sanctification is entirely taken care of by him. Your worth before God, your value as a person, your ability to properly worship and serve the Lord are all entirely taken care of by Jesus. You have been filled in him. You don't need to add anything else to him. He didn't leave anything out when it comes to connecting you to God. He didn't leave out a step. He didn't hide something. He didn't keep something secret. He's the fullness of God, and he filled you. So if you're like, well, what's my connection to God? The fullness of God is in you. There's nothing left out. Do you require any more holiness? Do you require any more goodness? Do you require any more sanctification to approach God? No. What else could he possibly do? He's given the fullness of God to you. What else could possibly outdo him? Nothing. Right? He's the head of all rule, the head of all authority. He didn't leave anything out. Nothing can do what he can do. And nothing can outdo what he can do. To think you need anything additional to the work of Jesus for your salvation or your sanctification or your glorification is to say that there's something that he missed or withheld, left out of his work that you have to somehow figure out and do apart from him because the cross didn't do it all. No amount of religious activity or mystical ritual will increase your standing before God. No amount of spiritual punishment or moral consequence could further atone for your sin. You have been completely filled in him simply by virtue of trusting in his work. By looking at Jesus and saying, he, he did it. He did it. And I, I belong to him. If you're Jewish, then that means that uh, your Judaism is all done. It all comes to, to an end. Your, your Judaism, is, it's all fulfilled. Everything in Judaism pointed you to a Savior. And the Savior's here. Right? That circumcision that the, the Jewish people were given as a sign of their covenant with God. 
in Genesis 17. That circumcision you were commanded to get if you're a Jewish male to declare that you belonged to the people of God. That was a sign that you were, you were part of the people of God for, for Jewish men. It only points to Jesus, the actual Savior, who truly makes you belong to the people of God, regardless of if you're physically circumcised. The, the, real, the real thing about belonging to the people of God is not whether or not you alter your flesh. That was just a symbol. And the substance of it is Jesus. If, um, if we go with a very modest description of circumcision without, without getting unnecessarily graphic, it's surgical removal or separation of a piece of flesh, and it's, it's performed by human hands. So that's how circumcision works. It's just a removal of flesh, and it's done surgically by human hands. Now, Paul is emphasizing how Jesus is God in flesh, right? Dwelling bodily uh, among us. And uh, his point is this, right? You were circumcised with a different kind of circumcision. He's talking to the Colossians, and most of the Colossians, almost all the Colossians, were Gentile. They were non-Jewish. So he's saying, I know you guys didn't get the Jewish covenant sign of, of, of circumcision. I know that. But you guys got a different kind of circumcision, you got a, a whole a whole different thing, and you and it's it's the real thing, and, and it's it's the thing that the the Jewish physical sign of circumcision was pointing to this spiritual kind of circumcision. That's what he's saying. There's this other thing, a, a circumcision that's not by human hands. It's not a surgery. You got a different kind of circumcision. It's the circumcision of Jesus. Now, if if the surgery is uh, uh, the physical removal of a of a piece of flesh. And it's done by human hands. Well, God did the real work. That was just a little symbol. It's a symbolic act to point you to understand something. That God came in physical form, in bodily flesh, and then he was killed. He was separated from his flesh. Not just a piece of it, but all of it. He was murdered on a cross. He died. He was removed from his flesh completely. That's the real circumcision. That's the thing that it's supposed to be pointing to. The removal of this piece of flesh is to show you that God was removed from his entire flesh. That Jesus was removed from his body. Right? That idea, if, uh, I'll read verse 11 to you. In him you were circumcised with, with the circumcision made without, without hands by putting off the body of the flesh. Whose body was put off? It wasn't yours. You're still, you're still living physically in your body. Whose body was put off? That was Jesus, which is why he says, by the circumcision of Christ. Right? That's a different kind of circumcision. It's not, it, it's not the surgery he's talking about. That's not what saves you. It's him dying on the cross, being separated from his body. That's what saves you. That's the thing that you place your faith in, and that now marks you as the people of God. That's the thing that does it. It's not this Jewish custom anymore. That was just pointing to something, and Jesus is the substance of it. He's, he's the object that it was, it was all foreshadowing. The fullness of God dwelling bodily was separated from his body, killed, dead for you. That's the real circumcision. That's a circumcision that makes you part of the people of God. It's not a physical mark it's a divine act. You're not saved by a physical alteration to your body. You're saved by an act of God. So you don't need to get physically circumcised anymore. That was a sign for the people of Israel. The crucifixion, that's what you need. You need God to be separated from his body, to die for you. 
Right, be honest. Raise your hand if that's the first time you're understanding the meaning of being circumcised with the circumcision of Christ. Raise your hand. That's right. That was a lot of work. I kid you not. I had to dig through a bunch of adjectival and subjective genitives to find the contextual point of the objective genitive. It's a lot of work, right? But you get it. You get it. You see where circumcision was in the Old Testament and how, how it fits into the big picture and what it was doing. Why the circumcision? To tell you that God had to be separated from his body for you. Not just a piece of flesh, but all of his flesh. He dwelt bodily, and then he was separated from the body of flesh. That's the circumcision you need. That's why, by the way, Paul can progress from circumcision, that subject, and then just start talking about burial and resurrection in verses 11 and 12. Because he's, he, when the circumcision he's talking about is the death of Christ. And he's like, you know, he was circumcised, buried, and, and raised again. Well, how does that follow? Because his circumcision is, a, is just a term he's using for the death of his body. Right? He died, and then he was buried, and he was raised again. That's what he's doing, right? You belong to God's people because God bodily dwelt among us, bodily died for us, and so he was buried, then he was raised again, and you... If you trust in him, you were, you were baptized in this, meaning you were immersed, you were dunked, you were submerged in it, soaked. You were baptized with him. And now you're credited with the same death, the same burial, the same resurrection, receiving the, the benefits of his work. The fact that you were baptized with Christ, placing your trust in him, placing your trust in his work on the cross, accomplishes Three very simple things that he has explained to us in verses 13, 14, and 15. Right In verse 13, he says, God made you alive with Christ. That's the first thing that happens. If you just place your trust in Jesus, God makes you alive with Christ. Right? Paul specifically applies this uh, to his non-Jewish audience in Colossae. As you know, their flesh was uncircumcised. Right? They didn't get the surgery. But he says, like, look, you used to be dead in your uncircumcisedness. You know, you, you didn't belong to the, the people of Israel. You didn't belong to the people of God. You knew that. You didn't even get the sign of it, the surgical sign. But the moment you placed your faith in Jesus, God made you alive. Even though you don't have the surgery, even though you're not Jewish, you are part of God's people. And, uh, and he makes this interesting transition. He's, when he's talking to the Gentiles, he's like, you guys were not circumcised. But then when he, when he says, oh, but God made you alive and he's forgiven us of our sins. Right now, now he includes himself in that. Like we're part of the same people now. He went from you didn't get the surgery, but we are forgiven altogether. God made you alive through your uncircumcised, uh, in your uncircumcised state because you trusted in Jesus. That's the real circumcision you need. And God has forgiven us all our trespasses since we're all believers. So that's the first thing he did. He made you alive with Christ. Then he says in verse 14 that he canceled your criminal record. Okay, hang on to that. He canceled your debt. Whatever you owed him, Whatever you, you owed him, it's gone. Consider the reality of this. If every sin you committed in the whole scope of your life, not just everything up until today, but in the whole scope of your life, if all of that has been forgiven, every debt you owe God is nailed to the cross, then all of it is paid. Jesus paid it all. Is there anything left you need to be punished for? No. So you certainly don't have to punish yourself. 
Jesus paid it all. So upon death, there's no punishment remaining. There's no debt that is still owed. Is there anything left to make you more righteous? No. You're credited with Jesus' resurrection. There's no more credit to gain. The life of God fills you. What other life is there? He canceled your, your debt. He canceled your, your criminal record. Thirty, he put all demonic and sinful power to shame, is what verse 15 says. He put all demonic and sinful power to shame, right? This is the part that God lets us know about even though we can't see it. This is the invisible part, uh, the, the, the very, very invisible part, like the stuff that we have no idea what demons are like and, and rulers and authorities and the other titles that he calls them and stuff. We don't know. It's the hardest part for us to relate to because our culture isn't, nearly as involved in mysticism and astrology as the first century was. They, they really had a, an involvement with that. You know, we're, we're into different kinds of ways of thinking we understand people in the universe. We're into Myers-Briggs and Enneagrams and stuff. You know, like we think that we have everything figured out because of that stuff. Uh, they were more into the stars, right? Just the, the relative position of the stars in the sky. They thought they could figure things out. But to the Colossians, it was a big deal. And, uh, and, what, what Paul's saying is like Jesus broke the power of the entire pantheon of gods that they formerly worshipped. Because it's possible, a lot of people back in that day, they believed in Jesus, and then they believed that Jesus kind of delegated the smaller responsibilities to these lesser gods, these demigods. And he's like, why? What would be the point? Is it too much for Jesus to do on his own? Give me a break. He did it all. So he says like, yeah, he, he, he put all that to shame. All the demons, all the, the rulers, the authorities and stuff. And what should be relevant to us, like we're not into the astrology maybe, but uh, the fact that Satan and demons, the spiritual forces of evil, as Paul calls it in Ephesians, you know, uh, where he restates these kinds of ideas. He talks about in Ephesians in chapter 4 and chapter 6, and he's saying like all those powers of Satan and the demons and spiritual forces of evil, they lose. Jesus triumphs over them. He parades his victory. They have no power over you. If you trust in the work of Jesus on the cross, the death of Jesus on the cross, the circumcision of Christ, as he's called it, if you trust in that, then the power of hell is broken over you. It cannot wield you and control you. Demons might try to do their thing, tempt you, trick you, and you know, whatever they do, they entice you. They could try, but they can't control you. They can't coerce you. They certainly can't possess you. The power of hell and its shackles over you are broken by the work of Jesus on the cross. What demons thought was their victory, you know, they thought they killed the Son of God. They thought that was their victory and they didn't realize that in doing so, that was their shame. Because what they really put to death was your sin, your penalty. And so everyone that was supposed to die who trusts in Jesus, they're set free. Hell lost its power. Sin is defeated, death lost his sting, the, hell, the, the powers of hell and the devil lost their power over anyone who belongs to Jesus. They're all put to shame. All those, all those spiritual forces of evil. Everything here connects you back to Jesus. Everything centers on him. Do you see that? Right? Paul isn't saying like, oh, Jesus is great, but now do some really good stuff. Jesus is great, but then be really religious. He's, he's not doing any of that. How do you approach God? Jesus. By just understanding Jesus, trusting in Jesus. That's it. That's it. Abounding in thanksgiving. That's, that's your part. 
Right? Do you notice he didn't, he didn't give you a task? Just avoid anything that doesn't have to do with Jesus. Abound in thanksgiving because he did it all. How do you please him, satisfy him, serve him, worship him? How do you, how do, you do that? Through Jesus. Look, think If you would just pay attention to the, the, what we've read so far, verses 6 through 15. If you ever notice that, in every single verse, Paul keeps pushing you to look back at Jesus. He keeps connecting you back. Look how many times in this passage he keeps telling you that. Verse 6, he says, as you receive Jesus, so walk in him. Verse 7, he's like, you're rooted and built up in him. Verse 8, he says, avoid any spiritual teaching that's not according to Christ. Verse 9, he says, in him dwells the fullness of deity. Verse 10 says, you have been filled in him, the head of all rule. Verse 11 says, in him you were circumcised by the circumcision of Christ. Verse 12, he says, you were buried with him and raised with him. Verse 13 says, you were made alive with him. Verse 14 says, the entire record of your debts were nailed to the cross. Who was on the cross? He was. Verse 15, over every demon and all of hell, God has triumphed in him. Do you need anything more? Does Paul leave room for you to be like, oh boy, but I, I still need this extra thing. Does he leave any room for you to say that? Of course not. Do you have to add any religious ritual, any spiritual ceremony? Do you, do you have to require some extra time being punished or being cleaned up? Do you need the assistance of some other clerical power or divine authority or mystical experience or teaching? Of course not. Christ is the fullness of God. You cannot ask for more. You don't need anything else. And so the, this is the explanation of the principle. And if you understand that, that Jesus is everything you need, He's the source and the meaning and the purpose and the goal of everything. Well, then the practice becomes a very natural understanding, becomes a very natural outcome of the theology. So let's, let's talk about the practice, verses 16 to 23. He kind of takes you here, and this is, this is specifically to what was going on in the Colossians day. You know, you might not relate to all of this stuff, but we'll see the very simple principle behind it. Verse 16, he says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Right? Those were symbols, and Jesus is a thing that they were symbolizing. Verse 18, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, if, if with Christ you died to the, the basic religious thought of the world or the demonic powers of the world, if, to, if, if with Christ you died to all that stuff, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations like do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, and all these other religious rules? Verse 22, referring to, to things that all perish as they're used. All these things are ac according to human precepts and teachings. Verse 23, these things, they, they indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism 
and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Meaning they can't save you, they can't sanctify you, they can't do a thing for you. The practice of this whole principle is don't let anyone pass judgment or condemn you for failing to do their religious thing. See, in their day, they had these Judaizers, these guys who went around saying, you have to get circumcised if you want to be saved. You have to keep a kosher diet. You have to observe the Jewish holy days in order to be saved. You, you know, faith in Jesus, yes, but you also have to do these things because they're signs of the covenant. They're signs of being part of the people of God. You have to do it. And Paul's saying, no, you don't. You really don't. All of those things pointed to Jesus. They were shadows, foreshadows. And Jesus is a substance. That's the thing you really need. They weren't requirements for salvation. Those are things that God gave to Israel to let you know more about what Jesus was about. Once Jesus came, you didn't need the symbols anymore. They're just shadows. He was the substance. He was the real thing. But that's how it always is when it comes to world religion. Every religion outside the gospel. If you just, it's how it always is. Sure, Jesus is good. Jesus is a good man, a good teacher, a healer, leader, revolutionary. You know, he was a hero. He was a martyr, all that stuff. You, yeah, you, you need him, sure. But you also need this. And they kind of tag something else on. They'll say, yeah, yeah, you need Jesus, but you, you, you also need mass. You need Jesus. You also need priestly con- confession or some other sacrament. They'll say, yeah, you need Jesus, but you also need our religious leader. Our prophet, or our, 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 our group leader that founded our organization. They'll say, you need Jesus, yeah, but you also need to speak in tongues. They'll say, you need Jesus, but you also need this extra book that we wrote, or this magazine that we publish. They'll say, you need Jesus, yeah, but you have to give a lot of money. They'll say, Jesus is good, but he isn't everything. Like he taught well, but he didn't really save. You still have to be purged or cleansed or, or transformed in some way by something that you have to do. You have to make up for the lack in some way. He forgives your sin, but he doesn't really make you righteous. You got to do it. You have to be sanctified by these four extra steps that we have provided for you. It always comes with some other kind of thing, some aberrant addition. Verse 18, he, he, uh, the, the Apostle Paul kind of tells you the kinds of things people try to add on. They try to add on asceticism. If you don't know what that is, that's, that's where like, it's, it's, it's where you just punish yourself. You're like, I just got to suffer a lot. I got to sit there whipping myself for hours in order to make myself clean before the Lord because I've been punished enough. I have to live in poverty. I have, to, I have to live poor all the time. You know, I have to suffer a lot or else I can't get, get blessed. That kind of a thing where you think that that uh, suffering, your suffering, is the way to God. You have to get punished. You have to, you have to feel pain. And then God will, will like you. He says, uh, you know, people try to add something else. They might try to add another object of worship, like angels. Back, back in that time, a lot of people were worshiping angels. Jews were doing it. Pagan sects were doing it. You know, they would, they would worship angels. Or they would have another source of scripture, a prophet, or whatever. They'd say, like, add this to your worship. There's the Jesus thing and all the story and stuff and the teaching. Yeah, but we got the real prophet here, the real scriptures here, the real book or the real magazine you have to subscribe to. 
And some people were adding stuff like mysticism, seeing visions, you know, speaking in tongues, that kind of stuff. They're saying, like, if you don't experience this, then you're really missing out. You know, the Jesus thing is good, but you also have to, you have to have this. What's Paul's opinion of any of those religious ideas that tries to say that there's something apart from Jesus that can connect you to God or that has anything to do with your relationship with God? What does he say? He says in verse 18 and 19 that it's without reason and he says it's a sensuous mind. He says it doesn't hold fast to Jesus, the head. It's a body without a head. That's not his body. It won't grow as his body. And he says in verse 18, it'll disqualify you. Don't let someone disqualify you by giving you that kind of teaching. If you, if you start holding on to asceticism or worshiping some other, some other thing, you add that stuff on or you add on mysticism or something, it disqual- you're not part of the gospel. If you believe that there's something that Jesus didn't teach, something that he left out, something that someone else wrote about or talked about, that somehow is in some way related to how you approach and satisfy, please glorify and worship God or how you stand before him, you're outside the gospel. It disqualifies you from salvation. It means you don't trust in Christ alone. You don't trust in Jesus. You trust in Jesus plus whatever you're imagining. And so you think the plus whatever you're imagining is the real deal. That's the thing you really need. You say, Jesus, oh yeah, you need him. It's just not enough. You need this. That's the Savior that you're, you're trusting, and that's the head that you're connecting yourself to. Jesus plus something else. That's the basic religious thoughts of the world. That's the demonic thoughts of the world, to say that Jesus wasn't enough. So why trust in any of that stuff, right? I mean, uh, th- that's all empty, deceitful philosophies written by hollow and de- deceived philosophers, why trust in any of that? You heard the gospel. You heard the call to repentance, to, you know, the, the call away from trying to earn your salvation, trying to do it yourself. You heard the call to trust solely in Jesus' work. Anything else you add on is bound to perish because it's according to human precepts, human teachings, not according to Christ. Right? They sound wise, but they can't save you. They can't sanctify you. They can't instruct you in any fruitful way. All it will do is indulge some empty or deceived thought that's from the flesh or from the devil or from the world. And at the end of it, it's a self-made religion. It's you have just kind of picked and chosen whatever you wanted to say that, oh, this must be now the body of what, what is true. It's self-made religion. Jesus... Jesus didn't give, give you freedom to make self-made religion. He says, look, it's, it's Jesus and only Jesus. It's all of Jesus and only Jesus. If Jesus didn't say it, if Jesus didn't teach it, who did? If Jesus didn't say it, if Jesus didn't teach it, if he didn't, if he didn't give it to his apostles and the apostles wrote it down for us, then, then where did it come from? What, your, your favorite prophet? Your favorite TV show? Your favorite author? Your favorite culture? Your favorite society? Your favorite activist cause, your favorite philosophy, where did it come from? It came from the world. It came from the devil. It came from the flesh. doesn't matter. It didn't come from Christ. If we want to be the church that God wants us to be, our approach to him, our worship of him must be centered on Christ. 
If we condemn people or if we exclude people or disqualify anyone for not doing some religious activity that we say they have to do, if we start doing that, if we say, oh, because you didn't join our membership, you, you're not part of the people of God. If we start saying that, we're lost. If, if we start paying homage to supernatural powers and, and uh, earthly authorities, existential planes of existence or other rules rather than Christ, if we start doing that, we're lost. If we pander to good works or mystical experiences, speaking in tongues or, or I don't know, discovering like gold dust on your hands because you've been praying so whatever. If you've got some religious rituals or spiritual suffering that you need to go through in order to be worthy and right before God, if we say stuff like that, we're lost. If we base our theology on human teaching that Christ never taught, we're lost. And if we're lost, we will look pious. We will look wise. We will look moral. We will look religious. We will look spiritual. And then, at the end of it, anyone who embraces our teaching would be lost. Whatever we teach, it'll place limits on Christ's work. It'll reject the efficacy of his work. It'll suggest the inadequacy of his work. It'll say we have to augment or improve or finish the work of Christ with our teaching, our ideas, our lifestyle, our standards. It'll be self-made religion. Self-made religion is a different religion. It's not God's church. It's not connected to the head. Everything we need for salvation, everything we need for faith, for spiritual growth, for moral direction, for existential purpose and destiny is found in Christ and in Christ alone. Every means of approaching God, understanding God, experiencing God, and serving God are in Christ and in Christ alone. No self-imposed discipline or solemn rites or otherworldly visions will make us fuller members of the community of saints. And it will not deliver us more fully from our sins, and it certainly will not make us more secure with a better hope. We don't need to add some religious exercise as if it were a spiritual vitamin supplement that can correct some salvation deficiency in Jesus' work. We don't need to add some sacramental observance to tune you up to receive more of God's grace. We don't need to add some additional spiritual figure to lead God's people. We don't need to add some additional existential plane to further make you ready to meet God. We don't need to add some spiritual ritual to enhance your awareness of God's will for your life. All of those resources are available to you, fully available to you in Christ, in Christ alone. Jesus says in, in uh, John 14, 6, says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's true. You want to get to God? You go through him. Him alone. Matthew 28, 20, he says, uh, you know, go make disciples. If anyone's going to believe in me, if anyone's going to be a disciple, you have to, you know, let him be baptized in me. That has to happen. And teach him all that I commanded him. All that Jesus commanded, Jesus alone. He paid all the penalty. He did all the work. He gave all the benefits. He gets all the glory. If we want to be the church that God wants us to be, we have to have the right approach, the right worship. And the only way to have the right worship is to trust in Christ and Christ alone. If you believe it, say amen. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for Jesus and his work on the cross. We thank you that the fullness of you is in him. And he fills us so that there's nothing lacking. No additional punishment needs to be paid. No additional righteousness needs to be credited. Everything is centered and connected to Jesus as a source and meaning and purpose and destiny. So God, we pray that as a church, we would be the church you want us to be, a church connected to the head, to Christ and to Christ alone. Everything he taught, Lord, you gave to the apostles, the, the apostles taught it, that's their doctrine, and they wrote it down in that scripture. And we trust in it. We want to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly, in Christ alone. And we pray, God, that we would walk away from any other influence that might try to entice us with its worldly wisdom, with its demonic power, with its fleshly appeal, and how it says that there's something outside of Jesus that can be offered to us. Steer us away from that kind of thought, Lord, and center us squarely on Jesus as the sole author and perfecter of our faith. We pray, Lord, that this church would be a church that approaches you only through him, not through some kosher diet, not by observing holy days, not by worshiping angels, not by punishing ourselves, not by going after mystical experiences. No, instead, Lord, we just come and realize who Jesus is and what he's done, and we just abound in thanksgiving because it roots us and it builds us up and it establishes us in what you've revealed about Jesus. Bless this church, Lord. Make us faithful. May we trust in you, God our Savior, and be your people. All this we pray for Christ's Christ glory in his name. Amen.